Today on The Novelizers, comedian Andy Daly and Archer's Chris Parnell, plus Lily Sullivan and intern Kevin Carter. Now here's your host, Andy Richter. As long as humans have existed, they've gazed up into the night sky and wondered, are we alone in the universe? Is Earth, that minuscule speck of dust in an endless sea of blackness, the sole home to intelligent life? And what if aliens do exist, but they're huge assholes that wanted to drive all the way over here in their big spaceships just to blow the fuck out of us for no apparent reason? Those eternal questions, especially that last one, are posed in the film Independence Day, the film we're tackling this season on The Novelizers, a podcast where we take classic films, get comedy writers to turn them into a book, and then get actors and comedians to narrate. If you're just tuning in, relax. My intern, Kevin, will explain everything. Hi, Kevin. Can you summarize the film so far, but do it in the style of an old Rodgers and Hammerstein musical number? I cannot. Okay, fine. Uh, How about a rap? Finally. July 2nd, there's a flag on the moon. Earth in the distance, it's happening soon. Pick up the sounds and the signals are buzzing. Call the president, the aliens coming. David comes in riding bikes in the office. Something is wrong, but he don't even notice. He worried about recycling and can't even focus. Marty showed the data, but he think it's bogus. And Cali Russell crop dusting while drinking. Steven is sleeping. Jasmine is dreaming. The ships are covering all of the region. While David realized that the signals has meaning. So he just getting his whip. Him and his dad take a trip. The seated commander-in-chief. And his ex is still sick of his shit. Steven wants a job flying in space, but there's a thing that's stuck in his way. Jasmine stripping, give his cover a barrier. All of that make him nervous to marry her. Dancing is bad, but her body's the truth. Men pay her no man, they watching the news. She mad in the back while a wig coming loose. Her friend wants to greet the alien. She like, promise me that you won't go on that roof. David go talk to the president. Let him know his time is evident. He cracked the code and said, we gotta go. In about 30 minutes, man, life is irrelevant. Everybody gotta go, gotta go. People on the roof enjoying the show. Clock is zero, only David could know. Yeah, the country's attacked. Lives we not getting back. Airport blowing up, lights still work. I'm not getting that. It's July 3rd, Lady Liberty is sleeping in the water. Everest one made it out alive. The president watching his daughter. While Steven in the air living the slaughter. They got force fields, we got no shields. Getting mo kill, left and right. Steven 101 going at it with an alien. They flying left and right. He checked before the crash. The alien lands on his ass before Steven knock him out. Hell, you effing right. I watched Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum any given day. Now you all caught up on this movie and it's called Independence Day. I watched Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum any day. And now you all caught up on this movie and it's called Independence Day. Out! Bravo! Our next chapter was novelized by Andrew Lynn and narrated by Andy Daly. And if you ask me, that's still not enough Andys. <laughs> Andy Daly... Novelize us. Chapter 11. The Tank of Forbidden Mysteries. Novelized by Andrew Lynn. Narrated by Andy Daly. Major Stephen Mitchell was barely 30 years old. His job was running things at Area 51, a military installation so secret that its official government designation was just kidding. That would seem like a pretty prestigious assignment for a man his age, but you have to consider that this secret base was just for science stuff. Also, it was drilled into the living stone a solid half mile beneath the sun-blasted wastelands of Nevada. He was the reigning king of America's biggest hole lording over a bunch of socially malnourished nerds. Mitchell wasn't a nerd. It was obvious at a glance. He was very much a military man. He never needed to stand at attention because he already was. His clothes were so crisp and tailored they looked like a person, even when he wasn't in them. His voice seemed cast from iron and never quavered the slightest bit, even when he was terrified. That was a necessity for the job. Something terrifying could happen at any moment in Area 51. Mitchell was also a good-looking guy who didn't seem a day over nubile, and he did all the right things to keep it that way. He ate clean, drank plenty of water, and had trained himself to sleep exactly like a log. His workout routine struck the perfect balance between strength and cardio, 
giving him the firm yet lithe form of a dancer. For Mitchell, his body wasn't just a temple, it was a cathedral. Diet and hydration were the sturdy buttress to the hand-cut muscle that served as the walls of his hard body. Atop those walls was the broad arch of functional strength. At the very pinnacle was the most critical piece, for the entirety of this biological monument would come crashing down, if not for its perfectly positioned capstone, which was made of something very special indeed. For you see, the most important muscle in the human body isn't actually your muscles. It's your skin, and the most important skin on your body is the skin that covers it. That's right, your skin. Mitchell treated his skin like a princess, a princess with flawless skin. It was luxuriously moist inside and out, and satin smooth even where it didn't need to be. It also had that toasted almond sheen that would seem impossible given the mole man lifestyle he was forced to endure. Most of Area 51's troll army were resigned to looking like translucent cavefish, not Mitchell. Mitchell kept his skin looking gloriously opaque by regularly applying a perfectly even coating of cream tanner. He was a master at this and managed full body coverage without having to ask anyone for help. Achieving this required a bit of a life hack. He would take a long wooden spoon and swaddle the bowl end of it with a cloth, which was then held in place with a rubber band. When he was done, he had the perfect tool for applying tanner to the places even his lovers couldn't reach. The results attracted many. That morning, Mitchell was already looking beautifully toasted as he awoke from nude slumber. He was refreshed and fully hydrated. His muscles pulsed with morning blood and his digestion purred. All that was left to worry about were the mountainous alien craft that were currently applying a thick layer of space lasers to the surface of humanity. You better believe those things are bad for your skin. But Mitchell wasn't all that worried about the invasion. He lived in one of the safest places on the planet. Instead, he woke up to the happy thought that even as he slept, he had been shooting up the military chain of command. Surely most of his superiors had perished in yesterday's worldwide carnage as he lay dormant beneath the earth. For all he knew, he was in charge of the entire armed forces. Hell, for all he knew, he was president. Mitchell looked with bemusement at his uniform which he always hung neatly where it would be the first thing he saw in the morning. All the color-coded pins and dongles must have gotten comically outdated over the night. He was definitely wearing the wrong kind of hat. Mitchell's radiant mood carried him out of bed and into his own executive shower. Stepping out a good twenty minutes later, he caught sight of himself in the mirror, which always made him a little horny. Bad dog, he said with a sly grin, reprimanding his emerging hard-on with a gentle smack. He toweled himself dry, then locked in the freshness with an assortment of lotions. Prophylactic ointments were applied to all the high-friction areas. He buffed his teeth to life and clipped the nails on his infant-soft fingers. He got dressed and scanned his reflection one last time, searching with his well-practiced eye for any lapse in quality. Not bad, he thought, for the most important person on earth. The phone rang in agreement. He answered it with an effortless gravitas. This is Mitchell. And just like that, everything went fuckside up. It turns out that President Thomas Whitmore and General William Gray had both missed their chance to be blazed into dust by the alien invaders, and both were upstairs demanding to know what the hell was going on. He needed to hightail it up to the surface and escort them to where they kept all of Area 51's alien shit. Thanks to years of cultish indoctrination, Mitchell didn't miss a beat. Yes, sir, he said. Two words to mark the quick and dirty death of all his hopes and dreams. The elevator ride up to the aircraft hangar was long and slow. An underground bunker is like a skyscraper on opposite day. Mitchell lived at the very bottom the penthouse suite, as it were. This gave him a few minutes to center himself. He closed his eyes, found his breath, and silently repeated his personal mantra, Chick-a-dee-dee-dee. He also did his best to align his various spiritual nodes. Since they all led down to his balls, it made him super horny. 
That was okay. He could use that energy. Eventually, Mitchell emerged into the kind of organized mayhem that always impressed when the brass came to visit. Cool fighter jets were artfully placed throughout the space. Uniformed people carrying interesting things dodged around in purposeful ways. Mitchell himself could have vanished into the chaos, but his nagging sense of duty sent him straight to the group of newcomers who were just walking in the door. One of them was the president. Who cares? From what Mitchell had heard, the commander-in-chief was the absolute worst. What he didn't know was that in the last couple of hours, Whitmore had suddenly realized he was president. Since then, determined to act the part, he was throwing nukes around and was being kind of an asshole to everyone. In other words, he was crushing it. Mitchell knew something was different as soon as he shook Whitmore's hand. It wasn't limp and clammy like he'd been told to expect. Whitmore's dry fist fully enclosed Mitchell's own like it was grasping nothing more than a puff of air. For the full duration of the handshake, Whitmore's eyes met his with a look so intense that Mitchell's lingering boner couldn't decide whether to get bigger or smaller. Tearing his eyes away, Mitchell looked past Whitmore to the rest of the group he'd brought with him. They looked like the kind of mismatched action figures you end up with when your parents don't ask you what you want for Christmas. General Gray was standing next to Whitmore. Arrayed around them were some guys in suits, Secret Service or whatever. Whitmore's communications director, Constance Spano, was there, which made no sense. There were actually a bunch of people who definitely weren't supposed to be there, not that Mitchell could give a soft brown loaf anymore. There was a little girl dressed up like she was on her way to a sock hop. That was weird. She had on a pink shirt, pink cardigan, and pink pleated skirt. Nobody else seemed to be aware that she was there. She was probably a ghost, he thought to himself. This actually made sense. Area 51 wasn't all aliens. They had some ghosts, too. Mitchell didn't go down to the ghost department much. Too scary. They only had enough human skin to cover a single tank, so all the ghosts were piled into a single one. The shrieking was both nightmarish and extremely annoying. The team of parapsychologists whose job it was to study them wouldn't even go in there. In 50 years, all they'd come up with was one experiment— how many ghosts can you fit in a tank? The project was ongoing. It didn't help that the ghosts, like this little girl, kept escaping. Later, he would have to have someone chase her down and stuff her back into the tank. Ghosts and aliens were just the beginning. Area 51 had some real heavy hitters. They had the Sphinx, not the statue, the actual Sphinx. She got to have a tank all to herself. She looked pretty much the same as the statue, would only eat living mummies, and smelled sort of like wet burlap. You couldn't talk to her. All she'd do is try to get you to solve one of her mystical conundrums. The answers were always stupid. Riddle me this? No thank you. Now you're probably wondering, where'd they get all those mummies the Sphinx was eating? The simple answer is that mummies love to fuck and don't use protection. Actually, they can't use protection. If you try to put a rubber on a mummy, it just falls right off. Their dicks are too dry. Mitchell liked to swing by the mummy tank from time to time. It made him super horny. Back in the aircraft hangar, nobody else seemed to see the little ghost girl, so Mitchell didn't bring it up. Welcome to Area 51, Mr. President. Please follow me. Mitchell turned around and led the group across the hangar to the big elevator. Once they were on their slow descent, he turned and spoke. We're going to be going out that way, he said, pointing to a second door at the far end of the car. There was an awkward moment while Whitmore pushed his way through to the other side so he could still be the first one to come out. The elevator came to a stop and the whole group of people exited into a small room with a big glass sliding door blocking their way. We are now 24 floors beneath the surface, he said with a flourish of his arm. Beyond the door was a long ramp that led down to a white room full of people in baggy plastic coveralls. This is our alien research facility. As you can see, everybody is really busy right now. However, Mitchell flashed a playful smile and turned to lead everyone back into the elevator. The folks over on level 32 are telling me that Bigfoot just woke up from his afternoon nap. And guess what? It's feeding time. Open the door, Whitmore said coldly straightening out his fresh new spine. Mitchell put on an apologetic face. Sorry, sir, that's a clean room. If a single microorganism were to get in there, then Lord save us. 
Before we can go in, we need to get completely disinfected and have all the static electricity removed from our bodies. And that isn't the half of it, it's a whole thing. We can come back here later. Then, turning to the rest of the group, after all, Bigfoot's young aren't going to eat themselves, am I right? The little girl seemed interested. Open the door, but open it. Whitmore had fire in his eyes. Of course, sir. Right away, sir, just one moment. Mitchell walked over to a phone mounted on the wall next to a brushed steel keypad with an icy blue glow. He reached into his pocket and produced an oversized black plastic card that was connected to his belt by a retractable polymer thread. He slid the card smoothly into the slot next to the keypad, and after a soft burst of static and a meaningful sequence of electronic beeps, a nearly invisible panel above the keypad slid away, revealing what looked to be a camera lens floating within a complex network of whisper-thin articulated arms. The device sprung suddenly to life, the arms twisting, locking, then twisting again, pushing the lens out into the room. It seemed to hover weightlessly in its web of three-dimensional metallic fractals. Mitchell leaned over and winced only slightly as three red needles of light spun out, converging on the surface of his right eye. Impossibly tiny servos hummed and chirped, sweeping the lasers back and forth as they scanned every detail of his retinal blood vessels. Satisfied, the device folded back in on itself. The panel snapped back into place and the keypad throbbed from blue to green as another light on top of the phone came cheerfully to life. Mitchell picked up the phone's handset and with a well-practiced flicker of his fingers, he punched in an 18-digit code. Turning his back to the group, he cupped the mouthpiece and spoke with a voice quiet but firm. Hi, Shirley. This is Mitchell. That's going to be a negative on the Bigfoot. Yeah, I know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, can't you just... Look, I don't think... Mitchell glanced back at the ever-darkening face of Whitmore. I mean, he definitely isn't going to... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, fine. I'll ask. Mitchell turned slowly around. The thing is, Mr. President... The folks downstairs just got so excited when they heard you were coming. They've been getting things ready all morning, and you should see the tank they got for the guy. It's huge! Mitchell stretched out his arms as far as they would go, then looked back and forth between his two hands, making a face like he had just impressed himself. You really have to see this thing. Whitmore smiled warmly. Or you can open the fucking door. Mitchell sagged as he hung up the phone. Yes, sir. The button's on the left there. Whitmore reached over and pushed the big yellow button marked open, which the door obediently did. The group walked down the ramp that led into a bustling lab. Mitchell hoped to God that Dr. Brackish Oaken had bothered to show up that day. Oaken was the head of the alien department at Area 51. It was his job to give the tours at the facility, and Mitchell wasn't remotely interested in doing it himself, especially since he was really starting to feel the edible he'd taken on his way up to meet the president. Oaken was probably peaked as shit, too, but he could somehow do his job just fine like that. Mitchell had to be careful with those army-strong gummies, or an hour later he'd be half asleep or off to the commissary to house a box of Lucky Charms. The gummies also made him super horny. He could edge for hours on the stuff. If Oaken showed up, Mitchell was definitely sneaking off for a flap sesh in the mummy tank. The alien department was where all of Area 51's top scientists ended up, and there was a sexy energy to the place that you didn't get anywhere else. The room was well lit, the air was filter fresh, and the walls and floor were barely damp at all. The people who worked there, in addition to being completely static-free, seemed to actually be enjoying their jobs. They crowded around tables overflowing with alien artifacts. In theory, they were supposed to be reverse-engineering incomprehensibly advanced extraterrestrial technology. Really, they were just taking everything apart and putting it back together over and over again. Occasionally, something would light up or make a noise, and it was high fives all around. Mitchell was about to start bullshitting his way through the lab when Dr. Oaken came bounding into the room like sweet Jesus on a stick, dressed in his usual lumpy, haphazard way. He had a sickly pallor, like everyone else who worked down here, but it didn't help that he never moisturized. 
Mitchell gave him a bottle of facial cleanser for his birthday once. Oaken thought it was hand soap. He came into the room looking about as excited as Mitchell had ever seen him. He seemed genuinely delighted to meet the president, which made Mitchell a little bit embarrassed on his behalf. Mitchell had seen a lot of himself in the goofy old scientist when they first met. If he hadn't started lifting in college, he might have ended up the same way. After Oaken introduced himself, Whitmore gave him a polite handshake, then turned to whisper something cute into the ear of Constance Spano. The two came away from the exchange giggling, so he had no doubt said something brutal at Oaken's expense. Oaken hadn't noticed. He was waving at Mitchell, trying to get his attention, emphatically mouthing the words, Oh. My. God. While Mitchell tried to look like he was lost in thought, or at least fascinated by the light fixtures. He was high as fuck, so he didn't have to try too hard. Finally, he looked down to see that Oaken was now clearly oversharing with the president. Mitchell could tell by the way his tongue was compulsively darting in and out of his mouth. Oaken was about to take everyone to go see the Big Tamale, what he alone called the crash-landed spaceship they kept in the next room. Mitchell realized it was long past time to fuck off. He said, to no one in particular, that he needed to go to the bathroom, then sidestepped out of the room. Mummy time. The centerpiece of Area 51's collection of oddities was this beat-up old alien spacecraft. Back in 1947, it had missed its stop and smashed face-first into New Mexico. It came to them in pieces. The first team of scientists to try to put it all together again spent months on the project before they decided it was too hard and gave up. The next bunch went at the problem from a different angle. They thought it might be that they simply didn't know what a spaceship looked like and decided that building one of their own might help. They got as far as landing a man on the moon before finally admitting it was a dumb idea and resigning in disgrace. That's when everything was shipped off to Area 51, which at that time was just a tank full of mermaids in the middle of the desert. The wreckage sat ignored in a warehouse for 10 years until Oaken arrived. He came up with the less goal-oriented approach of just messing around with the parts without really worrying about what anything did. After years of randomly jamming bits and pieces of the craft into each other, there had been enough happy accidents that they now had one big thing instead of a bunch of little things. It didn't exactly look like a spaceship, more like if someone had tried to make a cough drop look cool. They also got some pieces of the aliens themselves. They couldn't fit those back together at all, but the parts still looked impressive floating in a tank. Whitmore seemed far more interested in the dead aliens than the spaceship, and who could blame him? The ship looked dumb and was probably all fucked up anyway. The aliens were also fucked up, but at least they looked like actual aliens. Whitmore also thought the tanks looked cool, but then he hadn't seen the Bigfoot tank. The Bigfoot tank was a huge glass silo, four stories tall. The inside of the tank wasn't just designed to look like a forest, it was an actual old-growth forest. In fact, it was the oldest-growth forest in the United States. Every last leaf and clump of dirt was painstakingly moved to Nevada from Alaska using the few remaining spaceships the U.S. had left over from the moon landing. Most of the trees, of course, died in the process, either from lack of air or the exhaust from the spaceships, many of which were destroyed as well. The fraction of boiling hot frozen forest that came crashing down to Earth on the doorstep of Area 51 was barely enough to kill everyone in the vicinity. Fortunately, they didn't need all that much to begin with. Now the only problem was finding the animals they needed to populate it. The ones they had assumed would be coming with the forest had not survived the trip. Their flaming corpses would continue to fall out of the sky for days, although most would remain safely in orbit. When forced to confront the problem, Area 51's radical zoologists came up with one of their best ideas ever. The whole point of bringing the forest here was to make Bigfoot comfortable. Previously, he had been staying in the compound's guest quarters, which he hated since his namesake feet would always stick out over the end of the bed. The scientists realized that since he was America's oldest surviving vestigial mammal, he would be most comfortable in its oldest surviving forest. 
Only after the loss of that forest's previous ecosystem did it occur to them that Bigfoot would also be most comfortable around America's oldest animals, surviving or not. So, thanks to a Herculean feat of cloning innovation, the genetic programmers at Area 51 created an entire menagerie of medically reincarnated megafauna. The project was widely considered to be a scientific triumph, even though many of the animals turned out to be biologically ill-suited to each other's company. They slaughtered one another as soon as they were set loose in the Bigfoot enclosure, which, in retrospect, was perhaps a bit too small. The result of this near-instantaneous burst of natural selection was a tank full of the most enormous and enormously savage beasts to ever be confined to such a small space. Bigfoot now lived a life of constant physical and emotional agony, and he never left the tiny cave they placed in the corner of his tank. This never bothered the people who came to see him, because the gargantuan, hideously scarred megafauna, which smashed themselves repeatedly against the glass walls of their enclosure, were more interesting to look at anyway. Back on the 24th floor, Whitmore stared at the mushed-up aliens in their little tanks for a long time. Eventually, he decided, yeah, we could kill these motherfuckers. Perfection. Of course, every week, my intern Kevin interviews someone who made the movie Independence Day possible. Kevin, who'd you talk to today? I'm here with kissing coach Lily Sullivan. Lily, how's it going today? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so good. Uh, really excited to finally talk about my work. That's what we like to do here on the Novelizers. You know, we pick people who don't really get the shine. We're, we're, here, we're here to put the spotlight on you if that's all right. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I definitely don't do what I do for the spotlight. Um, but I really appreciate you just calling attention to the hard work that um, I do on set. So thank you. Not a problem. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, for those who don't know, what is a kissing coach? So an onset kissing coach is someone who comes in and works directly with the actors involved in said kiss. Um, and we do um, some really intensive training together leading up to the big shoot day. It is one of the most important jobs on set, but it's never really discussed that way um, because, you know, when we see a movie, we don't see it to watch it for the special effects or for the plot or for the actors, or for the writers, or for, you know, the set. We don't watch a movie for that. We watch it for the kiss. And mm -hmm. um, Yeah, that, that's good. Um, what got you into that? Like, what made you say, you know what I'm saying, I want to be a kissing coach? Because that seems like a very niche type of type of job. What made you get into that? This wasn't something I dreamed of being when I was a little girl, but um, it did start when I was fairly young. I developed um, a rare form of oral herpes um, that covered just my entire um, head. And that at that time, no one, none of, no one wanted to kiss me. Um, I tried very hard uh, to kiss people in my grade and um, no one was interested. And that that continued um, all the way through college. And I remember just telling my mom and my multiple therapists, um, if I ever get out of this, um, I am going to kiss as many people as I possibly can. And um, luckily enough, they developed a cure. And I went on to kiss thousands of people. And one of those people happened to be a, an agent. And they said, um, I would love if you could work with one of my clients. And um, I did. And we, um, you know, from there, it was just smooth sailing, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm happy they found a cure, you know what I'm saying? Because just the, the vivid thought of, of it covering your whole face was, you know, wow. It was, um, some compared me to, um, did you ever see The Elephant Man? It was like that, but I'd say more like pus and more red. Like when, when, you, get, when you got the call, you're like, oh man, I get to do this. Like, mm. how was that on set? Was there, was there any, like, real, like, sparks with the kissing? Or was it all just, they're just acting? You know, it's really case by case. Um, lots of people, lots of actors hate each other. Let's just start there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. They absolutely despise each other. Um, but that doesn't mean that the kiss has to suffer. And I found that working with, you know, certain people, for example, I worked with um, Tobey Maguire and Kristen Dunst in Batman. 
And um, if you'll remember, they kissed, they did the upside down kiss. The and upside down did, kiss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did win Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards for that. Um, did you choreograph the upside down kiss? I did, yeah. Wow. I, because they hated each other so intensely, they literally couldn't even look at each other. And I said, hang on a minute. Why don't we turn him upside down? And that way his face won't look like his face. And it was beautiful. And that, again, just because they literally wanted to murder each other doesn't mean the kiss has to suffer. And I think my mm-hmm. work um, speaks for itself. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, especially when, when, you, when you can tap into, oh, you hate each other, but yeah. you have to love each other right now, you know? Right. Um, that's that's that takes talent. Um, how how was it difficult on the set of Independence Day? Because I mean, I don't think I saw a lot of kissing scenes. No, right. There was enough that was impactful. Specifically, I was brought on set to coach um, Vivica and Will with their big kissing scene, which um, not again, not to toot my own horn, but did win Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards. So they both are good kissers. I'll just start there. By, by the way. Part of the training that I do is I work long, long hours on set with them. Mm-hmm. And we were leading up to that kiss. We worked for about two and a half months. Um, and they would, you know, work with me for a good six to seven hours a day, just training. I would be, you know, I would work with them independently. So just, you know, we would kiss and I would just work their mouths work them as hard as they possibly could. And, um, you know, I remember Will afterwards be like, well, my, you know, my jaw is so, my jaw hurts and, you know, my face hurts. And I was like, that's good. That means you're doing it right, Will. And then, you know, when on the day, you can see they they kiss each other's faces off in, in that scene. They really go at it. They really go at it. And I think it just captures, again, you know, just the, that moment specifically, like, thank God, you know, she's still alive. Thank God he's still alive. It's also really horny. And that's what we want. We want people at home horny. Do you ever, like, get caught up in the moment, you know, saying when you're training somebody to where it's like, oh, no, we're kissing. Like, oh, man, like, like you're kissing Will Smith for seven hours. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm pretty sure it's a lot of women in the world that, that, would, that would hate you right now. So you're kissing Will Smith for seven hours. Did right. you ever, did, did some ever click where it's like, you know what, this might be more than a job right now. I'm really enjoying this. Constant, constantly. Um, I remember kissing Rachel McAdams and um, leading up to The Notebook, which I don't want to toot my own horn, but did win Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards. And mm-hmm. um, I was like, I actually thought I loved her. I really, really thought we had something special. And um, then I got hit with a major lawsuit uh, for stalking. So you've crossed that line. Oh, absolutely. It's hard not to. Um, It really is because I'm in their mouths, again, six to seven hours a day, Mm -hmm. two to three months of the movie shoot. So Mm -hmm. I'm in it. (laughs) You know, I I get Mm -hmm. lost in the moment and that's what makes for a good kiss. But, you know, of course, I have to reel it back and I have to tell myself, get it together, Lily, get it together. Um, And and come back to earth a little bit afterwards. And it can be hard. It, it's a, it's definitely, I mourn every job I do. I cry for six weeks after every job um, because I've lost two intimate lovers on set. It, it's hard. I, I don't have a boyfriend or a husband or anything um, or a girlfriend or whatever right now because I just, I, I don't have the time. And I honestly, I'm too caught up. I've had, in, in a way, I've had thousands of, of people that I've dated on all of these movies. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Do, do, is it is it hard to find love because of your profession? It's hard. It is very hard. Um, it's one of the most enviable jobs that I have, and it does make real life relationships hard. I don't speak to all of, any of one in my family, and I think that's just because they are so jealous of what I get to do. Did your family ever like shun you? Not not because of jealousy, but just because of maybe they're ashamed that. You're just going around kissing people all the time, or, or well, are they yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah, that's what they say. They say they're ashamed of what I do, and that mm-hmm. it's you know perverse and um, unhinged and uh, unsafe, as you know some people have said even, and disgusting and degrading and um, pointless and unnecessary. Those are those are a lot of things they're saying. Yeah, but I I know at the heart of it, it's jealousy. I, I'm I'm also an avid kisser as well. You know, I, I do a little oh, bit, wow. a little bit of kissing. 
Good um, for you. Yeah, um, I've been trying some new new kisses because I, I know French is there. I've been doing a lot of the Russian kissing, mm. um, and that's just when you uh, take a shot of you both take a shot of vodka and then you swap the vodka. Swap the vodka, yes. Oh, I know, I know, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just want to, I, I knew you knew, you know, I knew you knew. Um, yeah, so I've been doing that one. Um, the German kissing, I've been doing that as well. Right, um, where you, you kiss with a pretzel in your mouth, where each person has a little bit of pretzel, yes. Yes, I, you, start, you start from one end of the pretzel and you kind of like go in a circle. You go around, right, you follow the twists. Until you meet in the middle. Yes. Yeah, this this I, I, I never I never knew I could have this conversation with somebody. This is very great you know, that we have this conversation. No, of course. I'm... And obviously, you know, the Italian kiss has been relabeled the Lady and the Tramp kiss, but that to me is an yes. Italian kiss. Yes, and yes. that doesn't get spoken about enough, in my opinion. Um, yeah. And obviously, there's the Canadian kiss as well, um, mm-hmm. where you stand. Um, and you kiss, just you kind of just mime kissing from far away. Yeah, yeah. You you, you, know, you never touch lips. You just you just right. act it out. Yeah, you just act it out. Yeah, yeah. The the one kiss I haven't I haven't tried yet, and um, I don't I don't know if I ever will. Is the American kiss, and it's just mm. you know you, you put you put like a you put like a nine millimeter bullet like in your mouth, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, you, you, you just kiss that way. Yeah, I've done that a lot actually. Um, you take a loaded gun. And yeah. you stick one end in one person's mouth, and then the other person mm-hmm. kind of wraps their mouth around the trigger, and yeah. Um, and yeah, you just you go to town on that thing, and you hope for the best. Yeah, it definitely gives you a rush. It definitely gives you a rush. Right. Well, why are we on Earth if not to have a rush like that? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, this is great. Um, also, I want to let you know that um, before we get off here, um, you know, I'm also writing a screenplay. <gasps> Good for you. I'm, I'm trying to get. And Andy doesn't know yet, so don't tell him. I've, I've just been writing and everything like that, and just trying to get people involved. You know, some of what I'm doing. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make it big out here, and um, I, I'm writing a screenplay, and it's called Smooches. Mm. I want 98 percent of the movie to be just kissing. Oh my god! And, and just a few words it's from an artistic standpoint, you know, just it sounds like heaven. So I'm assuming all like black and white as well, probably. Yes. If you want to give that artsy feel, yes. I love that. And yeah. you know, there's there's just so many kisses that the general public does not know about. Exactly. And I feel like like for you to do that, like to bring, I, I would love to work on that film. Anything I can do to be on. Um, I want to thank you for the interv- uh, for the interview today. This has been great. Um, I've loved the whole conversation. Same. This has been Lily Sullivan. I'm Kevin Carter. Please enjoy the rest of this podcast. Thank you, Lily. Our next chapter was novelized by Mad Magazine's Dave Croato and narrated by Chris Parnell, star of Rick and Morty, Saturday Night Live, 30 Rock, and about a million other amazing things. Mr. Parnell, novelize us. Chapter 12. Even as the world ends, people are still jerks. Novelized by Dave Croato. Narrated by Chris Parnell. A phalanx of RVs approached from the distance, finally settling to a stop in front of a guard post in front of Area 51. I'm Captain Stephen Miller. You have to let me through immediately, Miller said to the guard in the booth. The guard wiped his brow and with an earnest smile said, Gosh, Captain, I'm powerful, sorry, but I can't let you in. This is a restricted area and you don't have the clearance, sir. Oh, I see. Miller said as he pursed his lips. Come here a minute, he said, gesturing for the guard to approach the back of the truck. You want to see my clearance? Miller asked before pulling back his parachute to reveal the pale, glistening alien body beneath it. Dear God, the guard said, stumbling backwards. Is that enough clearance? Let this man through, the guard shouted to the armed guards who had been blocking the RV. Let's go! Miller yelled to the driver as the RV roared through the gates, racing to the main building. Another guard approached the guard from the booth who had fallen backwards, stumbling over himself in shock at seeing the alien. He placed a comforting hand on the guard's shoulder. Hey, Barry, are you all right? You're you're shaking like a leaf. Jesus, why did he have to do it like that? The first guard asked, dusting himself off as he got to his feet. He could have just said, I've got an alien, and I would have let him in. You heard me when he pulled up, Fred. I was nice as could be. Why do you have to be such a jerk? I don't know, man. It's been a bad couple of days. Maybe he's shook, Fred said. Oh, he's shook? We're all shook, Fred. My parents got incinerated in L.A., but you don't see me being a dick. I know, 
Fred said in an understanding tone. It was a dick move. I mean, it's not like seeing an alien scares me. I work at Area 51. I've seen aliens. You've seen aliens. We've all seen them. (laughs) It's almost boring to see an alien at this point. No, totally. It's the way he did it, Barry continued, making me get all close and then tearing back the sheet. We're all on edge already. I don't need some cheap jump scare on top of it. He's an asshole, Fred said with a sympathetic shrug. He is an asshole. His sunglasses were cool, though, Fred said. Yeah, Barry added grudgingly. They were pretty cool sunglasses. Jasmine drove the highway maintenance truck she had commandeered through the desert, lumbering across the dry, cracked terrain. She had managed to escape with her son and their dog, Boomer, who were both curled up next to her on the bench seat. The back of the truck was filled with passengers who had also been lucky enough to survive the alien attack. None of them had ever met before. The only thing they had in common was that they had survived. Actually, that wasn't true. Two of them had red hair, so they had that in common as well. Jasmine hated redheads. They were just weird. She wondered why she hated them so much. I guess because they're different, she mused, gripping the steering wheel a little tighter at the mere thought of them. Huh, I hate them because they're different. You know, I bet the aliens hate us because we're different too. I guess that means, in some way... I'm like the aliens. Something about the drive was making Jasmine pensive. Maybe it was the trauma she'd endured, or maybe it was not knowing if Steve was alive or dead, or maybe it was the uncapped 10-gallon gas can on the floor next to her in the truck's poorly ventilated cab. Mom! Dylan yelled, stirring from his makeshift bed beside her. Jasmine was jarred back to reality by her son's scream. We're crashing! He yelled, still half asleep. He was right. Jasmine had been so busy thinking, she hadn't noticed she was driving through a long, bumpy patch of tall cacti. The truck jostled violently as she got her bearings. Go back to sleep, honey, she said as she overcorrected and sent the truck up on two wheels. You were just having a bad dream, she said, shouting so Dylan could hear her over the screams of the passengers in the truck bed who were being thrown about. Dylan sighed and snuggled back into Boomer as Jasmine steered out of the field of cacti, coming out of the field with a final massive thump. As she looked in the rearview mirror, she saw a few of her passengers rolling in the dust behind them, thrown by the bumpy ride. I wonder if that was one of the redheads, Jasmine thought, as she closed her eyes and allowed herself to drift off to sleep. Back at Area 51, Dr. Okun and his team of scientists were getting ready to operate on the captured alien. Uh... Dr. Okan, one of the scientists asked, why exactly are we operating on this alien? What are we going to learn that we don't already know from those previous aliens we dissected? Also, it's still alive. Wouldn't it make more sense to let David try to communicate with the alien? To find out what they want and why they're attacking us? What? No! Okan shouted. We've been cooped up in here for decades! Now we get to chop open an actual spaceman, and you want to hand him over to a different kind of nerd? No way! Hand me that blade tool jobber. I'm going to cut through this gross flappy thing in the alien's face. But as Dr. Okan began to make an incision across the alien's gross flappy thing, the alien's finger suddenly moved. Then his eye opened, and soon that alien was tearing apart the operating room like Popeye in a saloon brawl. A few hours later, Jasmine and her passengers arrived at a large fence surrounding her destination, El Toro Air Force Base, where Steve had gone right before the attack. Hard to believe that it had only been yesterday. It was amazing how much could change in just 24 hours. She wondered what the next 24 hours would bring. Good news? Maybe. But everything behind the fence was a wasteland of smoldering wreckage, and the air was thick with a stench of burnt flesh. So probably bad news. Still, tomorrow was another day. They decided to set up camp for the night at the base. Not everyone wanted to. Some said they should just keep moving and seek medical help for the two seriously wounded members of their group. But Jasmine had held firm. She was tired, and it was her truck. Besides, they had driven nearly three hours. Enough was enough. If they didn't like it, that was just tough nuts for them. A few hours later, after Jasmine had made a bed, complete with a knit afghan and cup of tea for one of the ladies who was injured, Jasmine went over to talk to her. So you're the first lady, huh? Jasmine asked the injured woman. Yes, I didn't think you'd recognize me. 
Yeah, well, I voted for the other guy, Jasmine said slyly, alluding to the deeply divisive and racist platform that President Whitmore had successfully run on. So tell me, the First Lady said, eager to change the topic, what do you do for a living? I'm a dancer, Jasmine said. Ah, ballet, the First Lady replied. Not quite, Jasmine said. Exotic. The First Lady furrowed her brow. You mean flamenco? No, Jasmine said, more risque. Oh, the can-can, like a cabaret dancer? The First Lady asked excitedly. No, I'm a stripper, Jasmine replied, losing her patience. Ah, a stripper, the First Lady said excitedly, like turpentine, working to get rid of old paint. How splendid, she said as she pumped Jasmine's hand proudly. As Jasmine looked at her incredulously, she noticed a dark red trickle of blood coming from the First Lady's ear and realized perhaps her injuries were more severe than she thought. Yes, well, nice talking, Jasmine said, getting up as quickly as she could. I should really go see what my seven-year-old is doing. I left him wandering alone in this fiery wasteland. Excellent, dear, the First Lady shouted, a few of her teeth tumbling out of her mouth as she spoke. Thank you for your service. Back at Area 51, the President and all the military came back from doing whatever was more important than watching a live dissection of the alien invading their planet. Thank you for showing me that, the President said to Major Mitchell. It really was just incredible. It's interesting, right? Major Mitchell beamed. People are always fascinated that our vending machine has both Reese's Pieces and peanut butter M&Ms. You don't often see them together like that. I wouldn't have believed you if you hadn't shown me, Major. It's fascinating because there's a limited number of slots in the machine. It seems like a redundant choice. Major Mitchell stroked his chin. There was a time when I would have said so too. But I've got to admit that there's a world of difference between the two candies. It's a more nuanced spectrum than you'd... Major Mitchell stopped when he noticed the president was no longer walking beside him and was instead staring fixedly at the glass-walled operating room. What is all that steam? The president asked, gesturing toward the cloudy operating room. It's probably just space steam, General Gray said, catching up to them, a bag of Reese's Pieces in one hand and a bag of peanut M&Ms in the other. So, fellas, are we going to do this taste test or what? He asked, excitedly shaking both bags of candy. With that, Dr. Okun's body, suddenly visible through the steam, slammed against the glass of the operating room, directly in front of the president. Dr. Okun, the president said, are you all right? But Dr. Okun did not respond. The president turned to Major Mitchell. Is he okay? Does he always have those tentacles around his neck? I can't remember if they were there when we talked to him before. Release me, Oaken said in a near whisper, his face smushed against the glass like a suction cup Garfield doll. My God, it's the alien, General Gray said, his mouth full of candy. The alien is talking through him, like some kind of space ventriloquist. <coughs> I know there is much we can learn from each other, the president said to the alien, ignoring Gray, who had started coughing when an M&M went down the wrong pipe. If we can negotiate a truce... If we can find a way to coexist, can there be a peace between us? The alien paused before slowly responding. Why would you think I would understand that long speech? Oh, I'm sorry, the president stammered, embarrassed. I only said two words of your language, the alien replied. Why would you? Assume I am fluent. That speech was a lot. Sorry, the president said. What I mean is, can we get along? Aliens and humans. Frankly, said the alien in a rasping whisper, this whole exchange has really put me off. So, no. And with that, the alien emitted a high-pitched chirping noise that brought the president to his knees, writhing in pain. Whatever the alien was doing, the president's brain felt like it was being jabbed with skewers, as if it was some sort of brain-shaped version of Kerplunk, maybe some kind of special edition that had been released with Nickelodeon branding. Mr. President, General Gray shouted, carefully folding up his bags of candy and tucking them in a pocket before assisting the commander-in-chief. Are you all right? My... Brain, he moaned. The president barely managed to get out the words. 
It's some kind of space voodoo, General Gray shouted. He and Major Mitchell watched helplessly as the alien, still behind the glass, tortured President Whitmore through telekinesis. Major Mitchell, the general asked, is this glass bulletproof? No, sir, Mitchell said, understanding Gray's idea and already unholstering his gun. Really? General Gray asked. It's just regular glass? Why didn't the alien break through it and kill us all? Don't know, sir, Mitchell said quizzically. It would have been pretty easy, given how he demolished the operating room. So we should shoot the alien, right? The alien pushed closer to the glass and seemed to perk up an ear. Wait, what is glass? Fire! General Gray commanded as he and Mitchell unleashed a hellfire of bullets on the alien, bringing it down and freeing the president from its psychic attack. As Gray helped the president recover, Major Mitchell stepped into the lab, shards of glass crunching under his shoes. He approached the alien, who was barely hanging on to life. Everyone at the base was talking about how Stephen Hiller had said, Welcome to Earth, before punching the alien right in the face. How cool is that? And then, after, he said, Now that's what I call a close encounter. Ha-cha-cha! A second zinger! Man, that was so cool. As Mitchell cocked his gun, he tried to think of something awesome to say before he emptied his clip into this alien. He furrowed his brow in deep concentration. Think, he commanded himself. Think. Take this to your leader, he muttered under his breath, aiming his gun and testing out the sound of it. Eh, that's one small shot for man, one giant shot for mankind. Uh, that really didn't make any sense. Oh, what about Houston? He has a problem. Just, okay, come on. What are some catchphrases from space movies? Oh, maybe, may the force be with you. Lethal force. Mitchell, what the hell are you doing back there? General Gray shouted from outside the lab. Ah, uh, nothing, Mitchell yelled back, feeling like he'd been caught. Realizing he was out of time, he blurted, Nanu, Nanu, motherfucker, and fired eight bullets into the alien's body, killing it once and for all. Mitchell rejoined General Gray and the president. What were you doing back there? Gray asked again. Huh? Mitchell said innocently. Nothing. What were you guys talking about? Nothing, the president said. I, I was just saying we should nuke them. Let's nuke the bastards. Cool. Sounds good. Major Mitchell said quietly as he reholstered his gun. Shiver me buttons. <laughs> That's a new phrase I just invented, meaning that I enjoyed the last chapter. Let's all start saying it, huh? Shiver me buttons. Anyway, that's our show for today. Kevin, land this here spaceship. Thanks, Andy, and thanks to this week's guest contributors. Andrew Lynn, Andy Daly, David Croato, Chris Parnell, and Lily Sullivan. More info about all of our guests can be found in the show description. The Novelizer was created by Stephen Levinson, produced by Stephen, Chris Karwowski, Rob Kudner, and Suchetta's Bokeel. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris. Improv booking by Christine Bullen. Music by Cole Emoff. Art direction by Crystal Dennis with illustrations by Barry Crane. Intro narration by Robin Reed and interviews by me, Kevin Carter. Special thanks to Luke Dennis and Peter Hayes at White Soul Public Radio in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Check out thenovelizers.com for more info about the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok. If you enjoy The Novelizers, please support us on Patreon or email thenovelizers at gmail.com to sponsor an episode. Till next time, I'm Kevin Carter, and as always, Novelizers out.